If you'll just stand for the reading of God's word, the text is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. We're going to read today verses 1 through 6. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 6. The word of God says, Now I, Paul, myself, urge you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. I who am meek when face to face with you, but bold towards you when absent. I ask that when I am present, I need not be bold with the confidence with which I propose to be courageous against some who regard us as if we walked according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And we are ready to punish all disobedience whenever your obedience is complete. You may be seated. Hey, and we have a lot of work to do here, so let's pray together and uh, we will begin, okay? Heavenly Father, again, we come before you thanking you so much, Lord, for the gospel today. Thanking you so much, Lord, for the liberating truths of your word. Where would we be without scripture? Lord, where would we be without the word of God? We would be lost. We would be in darkness. We would be altogether without a witness uh, of, of, of divine truth, of inspired scripture. And Lord, we're so grateful that you gave us a witness, not just in creation, but in revelation. Just thank you so much today, Lord, that we can come to this church, have a Bible in our hands, and open up the word and see what, what the mind of God is going to tell us today, Lord. We're just so grateful to have it. We pray that you would instruct us as we go into a new direction in the book of 2 Corinthians. We pray that you would give us grace and give me strength and give me uh, clarity and help me, be with me, and give me a mouth to speak your word. Um, I pray that you would give grace to the hearers in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we come to a new, new chapter, and it is uh, an amazing chapter for several reasons, not just the content. The content of this chapter is amazing enough because it's so dense and populated doctrinally, theologically, and practically. But it's also amazing in that Paul just shifts focus. I mean, he just, you know, he just screeches the wheels and takes us in a totally different direction. I mean, chapter 8, chapter 9, as we saw, was all about finances, was all about money. And then he stops there talking about the Jerusalem collection. And then he stops, and now he's going to make a shift in a completely different direction with a totally different emphasis and a totally different tone. Uh, chapters 10 all the way to chapter 13 now focuses on what they call the third part of the letter. Uh, you know, chapter, chapter 1, chapter 2 being the first part, chapter 2 all the way to chapter 7 being the second part, and chapter 8 or chapter 10 all the way to 13, that's the third part. And the third part is all uh, polemic. It is all about Paul defending, well, the faith and defending specifically his ministry, his, uh, his apostolic authority against his opponents and against those that would try to undermine his authority in the Corinthian church and among the Corinthian, in the Corinthian region like Achaia. But, uh, so that's the focus. So 
Paul comes out with guns blazing right here. Uh, he doesn't hold back any punches, and he begins to talk to us about a whole host of things. And so the title of this message, which really is going to be a two-part message, is Ministry, Warfare, and Paul. Ministry, because Paul is defending his, his apostolicity. Warfare, because he tells us about the nature of spiritual warfare. And Paul, because we continue to learn from his example. And I want to give you two things to consider today, and several things under that, okay? But two things specifically, and that's number one, Paul's opposition in Corinth and what it was like. Let's look again to verse 1 and verse 2. He says, I, Paul, myself, urge you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, who am meek when face to face with you, but bold toward you when absent. I ask that when I am present, I need not be bold with the confidence with which I propose to be courageous against some and regard, who regard us as if we walked according to the flesh. And so right there, the Apostle Paul gives us sort of a little bit of a background about what's going on, the accusations that are being leveled against him. And, you know, all sorts of scholarly debate ensues about who precisely are Paul's opponents. Some say, well, this is incipient Gnosticism, proto-Gnosticism. In other words, this is early Gnosticism rising up in the region of Corinth. Others say, no, it's the, uh, it's the, most, it's, it's the more commonly known Judaizers who pretend to have Jerusalem authority and have come to Corinth beginning to undermine Paul's authority. I probably lean more towards the Judaizer position. But regardless of who these men are exactly, the way they attack Paul is what is at issue here. Uh, Paul's opponents have attacked him on all sorts of different levels. Now, if you don't have an eye to see this, once you go to chapters 10 to 13, you know Paul's under attack. Then you go back and reread the letter, and a lot of things begin to make sense. For example, Paul is being accused of being a heavy-handed shepherd. Uh, just a shepherd, a pastor who rules with a heavy hand, who's domineering, who's tyrannical, who's controlling, and who's abusive to the sheep. As a matter of fact, if you look down at uh, right here in this chapter to verse 9, he says, For I do not wish uh, to seem as if I would terrify you with my letters. For they say, they say, his opponents, his letters are weighty and strong, but his personal presence is unimpressive and his speech is contemptible. And so they're saying that Paul's letters were terrifying the people or meant to do that. And so he doesn't want to do that. Earlier, he makes a concession, and that is this, that he was there for the joy of the church. That's his whole purpose for the manner in which he engaged in pastoral ministry. Again, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 24. Not that we lord it over you. Lord what? His authority. Not that we lord our apostolic authority over you, but our workers with you for your joy. For in your faith, you are standing firm. Paul's going to repeat this exact thing later on in the letter. Several times he repeats the notion of what pastoral ministry is all about. Pastoral ministry is for edification. That's what it's about. It's for building the church up. We know from Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, and so on, that, that, that we are to be building up the church, equipping the church, so that the church is then able to function and flourish and to move out in all of its giftings and all of its, all of its different uh, uh, talents and gifts that God's given to each individual member so that the church then builds itself up 
It's almost like pastorally what my job is, is to impart to you the biblical principles that you need in order for you then to take that and then take ownership of the church yourself. That's why we say in membership, you know, part of membership is partnership. The Greek word koinonia means fellowship, but it is also translated throughout the book of Philippians over and over, partnership. As I said so many times, if you walked into Costco and they said, welcome, we want you to be our partner. Well, that's a little different than just being a member. To be a member, that means, you know, you get perks. You get good stuff. You get to buy nice, good bulk, and you get to take home, you know, nice stuff. You know, Costco's nice, right? But if Costco t- comes up to you and says, we're going to make you a partner today. Well, partner? What, what role do I play? That's immediately what I would think is, what's my, my role here? And that's exactly how it is in church. You're not just a member who, is, who, is, you know, who has access to all sorts of perks, which you do, mainly through the, the edification of the body itself, but you are also a partner in the sense that you are also obligated to build up the church and to function in a healthy way in the local church. Let's look at some of these verses. 2 Corinthians 10, verse 8, Paul says, For even if I boast somewhat further about our authority, which the Lord gave me, for building you up and not for destroying you, I will not be put to shame. Notice that. The Lord gave him the authority that he had as an apostle for the purpose of edification. That's what that word means, to build up, to edify. And then he says later in chapter 12, verse 19, all of this time you think that we have been defending ourselves to you. Actually, it is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ. See, Paul's main accountability is to God. And then he says, and all your upbuilding, and, and all for your upbuilding, beloved. Paul loves the church. He calls them his beloved. He loves the church because they are his family. He loves the church because as he tells, you know, the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 4, that he is the fa- their father in the faith. He brought the gospel to them for the first time. And he loves the church, and he wants to nurture and foster the church. He wants to, he wants to nourish the church. In order, in order for him to do that, therefore, Paul needs to take on two pastoral postures that are really important. And if you're saying to yourself at this point, oh, this is about pastors, well, then I can check out. No, you can't for two reasons. Number one, because you need to keep me accountable. <laughs> Number two, because there's, there's instruction in here for all of us. You know, even the qualifications of an elder in 1 Timothy 3. I mean, every person here can glean and learn and benefit from that example. These two postures are what I call being tender and being tough. The tenderness is a Christ-like humility that the pastoral ministry demands. So number one, pastoral ministry calls for Christ-like meekness. Notice how he begins the letter. He comes to them and he says, I, Paul, myself, urge you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. He's coming to them in such a tone that is not domineering, that that is not abusive, but he's coming to them with the very humility of Jesus Christ. He's done this before. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1, so you see this, this Christ-centered approach to the church and a Christ-centered approach to pastoral ministry. 
In Philippians chapter 1, beginning of verse 8, Paul said there, For God is my witness, how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. There is a Christ-like affection because that's a holy affection. If there's no imitation of Christ, there's no sanctification to Christ-likeness. All Christ-likeness is, is sanctification. There's no such thing as you becoming sanctified unless you're becoming more and more like Jesus Christ. Isn't that amazing? In the New Testament, what God gave us is a person to look to, to imitate. Look to Jesus. Copycat Jesus. Do what he did in a sense. Be like he was. Act like he did. And there's two things here that Paul is seeking to do in order to do just that. This meekness that he had. They were attacking him that he wasn't meek. They were attacking him that he was this abusive, heavy-handed shepherd. Now, I don't know if you've ever been around a heavy-handed shepherd. I don't suppose that I have. I don't think I've been under a ministry ever where a pastor was abusive to me personally. But for many in the church, they have. For many people in the church, they've come from abusive situations. I know that. I've talked to many people that have. We've got members here that would, that would uh, testify to that. But the fact is this, is that in order for a, a pastor to truly be doing his job, he has to have meekness. He has to have gentleness with the people of God. Paul knew about this gentleness himself because he received it from Jesus himself. He was a recipient. He was a beneficiary of the meekness of Jesus Christ, of the patience of Jesus Christ. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 16, Paul says that Jesus Christ displayed his perfect patience toward Paul. Paul, the Christian killer. Paul, the persecutor. Paul, the insolent man, the arrogant man. Paul, the Pharisee, the, legal, the, the, the legalist. Jesus was perfectly patient with him. And Jesus loves the church, Ephesians 2, 7. Jesus is kind, uh, Ephesians 3, 9, excuse me. Jesus loves, is kind to the church, Ephesians 2, 7. And so Paul is just imitating Christ. And that's all that pastoral ministry really is. That's the essence of it. That's at the very heart of it, that you be like Christ. Turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. I think to answer Paul's critics and then just to see his example, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 is crucial. And if you don't know this, 1 Thess 1 and 2, chapter 1 and chapter 2, these, th these two chapters are pillars of pastoral ministry. They're just foundational. They're crucial. Right here, it's almost like Paul gives us a master plan for pastoral ministry right in these two chapters and for ministry in general. But look at his demeanor in chapter 2, verse 5. He says, for we never came with flattering speech. He didn't come to flatter them, number one. He didn't come just to tell them what they wanted to hear, as so many do. As you know, nor with a pretext for greed. He wasn't looking for money in the ministry, as so many do. He says, God is witness, nor did we seek glory from men, as so many do either from you or from others, even though as apostles of Christ we might have asserted our authority. You see that there? He had the, he had the ability, if he wanted to, to wield that authority. You think of pastors that might wield their pastoral authority in the church. Can you imagine an apostle 
wielding his authority, with the fact that they've done miracles, that Paul has been, he, he's worked miracles. Paul's going to go on to tell us in chapter 12 of the incredible revelations that he received. Uh, Paul could have easily wielded any of these things to his advantage through manipulation, through deception, in underhanded ways. He could have done this, but he doesn't. He refuses. He says, but, so here's a strong adversative, verse 7. But we prove to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children, having so fond an affection for you. We were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives because you had become very dear to us. Pastoral ministry is not a profession. You're not just called to be a CEO that can just stoically retreat away from the people and keep a clean break a separation no ministry is 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 dirty business actually you got to get down and dirty with the people you're involved in their lives you know their sins you're involved in their troubles their trials their problems their marriages their families their children everything and there's no such thing as professionalism in that sense there is only christ like and Jesus was a shepherd. He wasn't a CEO. <laughs> he, wasn't, he wasn't trying to be like the, the, the rulers of the world. Jesus told his, his, his disciples, look, earthly rulers, they, they, they lead you with a heavy hand. They lay heavy burdens on you. But Jesus says, no, learn of me. I am meek and lowly of heart. The second thing is that pastoral ministry not only calls for Christ-like meekness, but I am inserting this here, but also Christ-like boldness. Look at the text again. He says, I myself urge you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. And then he says in verse 2, I ask that when I am present, I need not be bold, meaning I will if I have to. And that's why I say it's also Christ-like boldness. For, you know, forbid that we would ever think of Jesus as this anemic hippie walking around in the fields of Galilee playing with the lilies of the field. Jesus was a man. Jesus was courageous and bold. We can see that boldness in the Gospels when he confronts the Pharisees. We can see that boldness in the temple when he overthrows the tables. You know what's amazing? I've heard so many sermons on that where pastors try to say, well, Jesus was a man's man. You know how we know that? We know that because in the first century, those tables weighed a lot. Of, they weighed a lot. They were heavy tables. He must have been manly. You know, he was a carpenter, probably had strong hands. That's not what makes Jesus a man there. What makes Jesus a man is not that he was lifting heavy tables, is that he was lifting the burden, the heavy oppression of religious hypocrites who were in power in that day. That takes boldness. That's a man that is not afraid to call out hypocrisy among the elites of his day. That's a man's man. And Paul is saying, if I need to, I will go there and be bold. I will be, look at the language he uses here, just in this very, just in this little cluster of verses. He says, he uses the word of boldness twice. He says he's not afraid to be courageous. He says he's not afraid to be confident. He says he's not afraid to be against. 
That preposition is there in the Greek. It, it means that he's ready to withstand them, to stand opposite of them, to confront them. And the Apostle Paul, if he was not afraid to confront a fellow apostle in Peter, in Galatians chapter 2, he certainly is not afraid to confront a false teacher in Corinth. We can see maybe the danger. We say, well, maybe Paul is overreacting. He is not overreacting. And what we need for Paul, or what, what we can learn from Paul, is what is so needed in our own day. I think we go way too soft on false teachers today. There is way too much political correctness in the church. John says that if a heretic comes to your home, don't even give him a greeting. Don't give him a posture where he can teach and propagate his doctrines. Renounce it. Tell him that he's playing with poison. Tell him that he's drinking arsenic. Tell him that he's on his way to hell. Tell him that he's under the wrath of God. John the Baptist did. Jesus did. Paul did. The apostles did. The early church did. They were not afraid to call out heresy. But sadly today, would you not agree that the only heretic today is the one who is pointing out heresy in much of the church? But Paul was not afraid because he knew that their teaching was destructive. Look at chapter 11. Chapter 11, beginning in verse 2, you kind of see, uh, you see the deceptive nature of the opponents and their influence, and you see Paul's zeal to protect the church. Do you have zeal to protect the church? Oh, especially for a pastor, does he have zeal to protect the church from doctrinal danger? He says in verse 2, I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy, for I betroth you to one husband, a real powerful passions that Paul is pulling on here. For jealousy is a powerful passion. It leads people to murder. That's how constraining it can be. That's how powerful the impulse of jealousy can be. But in a holy way, in a sanctified way, Paul is passionately jealous for the church. He says, I betrothed you to one husband, so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and the purity of devotion to Christ. For if one comes and preaches another Jesus, now we've seen that phrase before, have we not? Galatians chapter 1, 6 through 9, if someone preaches another gospel... He says, another Jesus whom we have not preached or a different spirit which you have not received or a different gospel, that's the more of a direct parallel, which you have not accepted, you bear this beautifully. And you say, what? Beautifully? Well, that's obviously spoken with irony. That's meant to be a slap on the face of the Corinthians to say, look, you're tolerating this and you ought not. I think a lot of areas in the church today need this sort of irony uh, thrown in their face, tolerating ecumenicalism, tolerating religious, you know, uh, uh, dial, you know interfaith dialogues. Uh, you know, before we moved here to, the, to North Dallas uh, in Keller, the city where we were living in, you know, a pastor right down the street from our church, right down the street, had a, brought in other religions to have a religious dialogue with other faiths to see what we can learn from Muslims and Mormons and Jews that are not in Christ. That is the complete opposite of what the Bible would tell us to do. Now, I'm all for a debate. You want to call James White to come debate somebody? Great. We might even host it. But not to come and say, here, come and just tell, tell us what you believe. 
but you don't know what Muslims believe? Really? That's unbelievable. Rick Warren has also engaged in this kind of, uh, I thought I'd call somebody out by name since I'm talking about calling out, you know, false teachers. I don't know if Rick Warren is a false teacher. He's not a Christian. Maybe he isn't. I don't know. But, I mean, it doesn't look good when Rick Warren calls in a group of Mormons to his church to educate his pastoral staff on how to do ministry, to see what we can learn from the Mormons. What? That doesn't bode well if you're not trying to be labeled a false teacher. Not in my book. And so you see Paul's zeal to protect the church. Paul's zeal to protect the church and to confront the church when it has erred. That's another aspect of, tough, of, 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 uh, of ministerial toughness, is it not? The willingness, the courage, the boldness to confront. I tell you what, the doctrine of church discipline is sorely neglected today. Sorely, sorely neglected. The reformers went so far because this was happening in their day. They went so far in the, uh, 15, in the 16th, 17th century to say, if you don't exercise church discipline, you are not a church. You're a club, you're a religious gathering, but you are not a church because a church is someone, there's a group of people that are functioning under the authority of the sovereign, almighty Christ. And if you're afraid to operate under his authority, then all you're doing is you're playing church. And so many people do. So many people are just refused to deal with sin in the church. Some people just refuse to, to call things out from the pulpit and to say, look, if you're not a Christian, you're not coming up on the worship team. Sorry. If you're living in sexual immorality, we're not going to give you membership, and you're not going to serve in ministry. No, there needs to be, you know, the Scriptures provide us a picture of a pure church. Paul's words, a pure virgin. We are to purify the church and weed out the leaven unless it permeate and destroy the whole lump of dough. The second principle is this. He gives us not just, not just his manner in ministry, his opposition to these leaders, but then he begins to, to answer their critique head on because this is their criticism. They regard him as walking according to the flesh. What does that mean? That means that they regard him to be conducting his life in such a way that it is devoid of God, devoid of the Spirit, here they're using the word flesh, sarks, in a pejorative way to denote evil, sin, sin nature, sinful things. Uh, Paul renounces and rejects this right away. Look at verse 3. He says, for though we walk in the flesh, but wait a minute, I thought he, I thought he just said that he doesn't walk in the flesh. That's what he's trying to say. But now he's saying we walk in the flesh. Well, obviously, there's a play on words here. The flesh there does not refer to the sinful, unredeemed aspect of man. There, the word flesh is referring to simply bodily existence in a fallen world, something we all identify with. He says, but though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. Boy, what an incredible statement that is. Now, Paul focuses our attention on this idea of war. If you know anything about this passage, I don't know if you knew, verses 3 to 6 are one sentence in Greek. 
That's a big run-on sentence, okay? <laughs> the apostle, under the inspiration of the Spirit, can get away with those kind of sentences because he's just going on and on and on and on. I know how he feels. I mean, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 14, that's the largest sentence in all of Greek literature, including Greek antiquity. Paul's letter to the Ephesians. This is another big uh, letter, a big sentence right here. The only reason I point this out is because in, within this sentence, there's only one verb. And you know what it is? The verb is the word war. You see that? You might have thought that was a noun, but it's not, obviously. He says, we do not war. The Greek word to war or to make war. I love it. He is calling our attention to the action of war spiritual warfare. He wants us to focus on this idea of a battle, this idea of a battle. And he wants to say two things about the nature of his battle. Number one, that his weapons are not rooted in the weakness of the flesh, in the weakness of the flesh. Really, there are two trajectories here. There are two different resources that we can pull from in order to live the Christian life, in order to engage in Christian ministry, and I want to point out that that is both involved. In the war that Paul's describing here, it's not just ministry, pastoral ministry. It is, the, it is blanketing the whole Christian life. Our whole life is being compared to a war. And so let's not overlook the obvious metaphor that he's using right here, that our life, your life, my life, your life is war. But really, how often do we really take this perspective? How often do we really engage our lives like a battleground? Too often, let's be honest with ourselves today, too often we want to think of our lives as, best, as, most, as often as we can as a playground. We want to we maximize fun, and we want to minimize trouble. We want to maximize convenience, and we want to minimize suffering as much as possible, and we will pursue it with all rigor. My friends, I am afraid that the church has learned way too much from the American dream, that we, we want to maximize as much pleasure as we can in this world. And you know what? You can do that in a Christianized way. And miss the fact that you're in a war. You're in a battle. And so the, the, what we should be asking ourselves are questions like, what area of my life right now is under assault? Is it my marriage? Is it at work? Is it in my personal life? What area in my life right now is the enemy getting the upper hand? And then, am I ready to make war with the enemy? Or do I want to play? Do I want to continue in this battleground perspective mentality of the Christian life? Listen, the hardest part of spiritual warfare is found in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 11. You know what that talks about? Putting on the armor of God. The hardest part about that whole thing is the first two words. Put on. If we don't do that, we won't win the battles. We will go out in a war we, we, with a feather duster in our hand. That's like a soldier, right? Going out to battle and they give him a feather duster and say, go take the hill, son. You know, you can't win those wars if you're not equipped. 
if you're not protected, if you're not shielded from the attacks of the devil. And so you had better take Ephesians chapter 6, verses 11 through 17, and you better do an in-depth study and ask yourself, look, my, my, my marriage is being bombarded right now. What's going on? There's a chink in the armor, and i got to find it because I'm taking blows here. But the more we look at our Christian life as a playground and not a battleground, we will suffer for it, plain and simple. The Christian life is a call to vigilance. Did you not know that? Scripture says be sober-minded. Scripture says redeem the time. The days are evil. You're living in evil days. Just last, last week, I was in Tulsa preaching on total depravity. And I began my message there by highlighting some of the latest headlines that had really compelled me to have to preach on this. Headlines that I almost don't even want to repeat. A man in London butchers another man. Two, two Muslims in London butcher a young Marine in broad daylight with, with you know, kitchen utensils, kitchen knives. I mean, two Muslim men, you know, load up pressure cookers in Boston and take backpacks into a crowded marathon, blow up women and children. A woman in China flushes her unborn, her newborn baby down the toilet, folks. I'm sorry, it's disturbing. You might be angry and say, man, don't talk like that. My kids are here. This is the world that we live in. You are not in a fun place. The world is not Disneyland. This world, you know what the Bible calls this world? I don't think it could use stronger language. Present evil age. Evil. You know what evil is? Evil is rebellion against God. Evil is breaking God's law. Evil is the desire to be God. We live in a world that is dominated by men and women who want to be God and do not want to have any God over them. And we as Christians today, we just abound in our Christian concerts. We abound in our Christian t-shirts and in, in our Christian bracelets and in our purity rings. When Muslims are saying, get ready, West, we're coming, and Islam will dominate. Something has to take place. We need to take the spiritual warfare serious. We need to listen to Jason in Sunday school. Because <laughs> we got to engage people on a spiritual level that is serious and vigilant and sober-minded. It's all around us, folks. That's just the truth. The second thing is this. Paul's weapons are not rooted in the weakness of the flesh. They're rooted in the power of God. I put down the power of the divine, but they're rooted in the power of God because that's what the Bible says. If you have a King James, for example, or a new King James, it says mighty in God, and that is more accurate than the NASB. The NASB tries to smooth it out and say, well, it was kind of a, you know, it was sort of a, you know, speech of that day. That's the way they talked. It was an idiomatic expression, and that's the way that this Greek word smoothed out. If the word God is there, leave it in there, because we want to know where does our power come from. Our power comes from God himself. He is the source. We go to him. Paul went to God for his strength, his power. He didn't go to the world. He didn't go to the flesh as they were accusing him to do. Let me read you something that I thought was just absolutely perfect. I couldn't have said it any better, and so I took this whole chunk of commentary and put it in my notes because I said, you know what, I'm trying to word this as best I can. He did it better than anybody. Let me just put his words in there. 
This is Philip E. Hughes. Philip Hughes wrote a commentary in 1962 on 2 Corinthians, and this is what he said regarding this whole idea of spiritual warfare and battling either according to the flesh or according to God. He says, only the panoply of God will serve this purpose. Only spiritual weapons that are divinely powerful to overthrow the fortresses of evil. This constitutes an admonition to the church and, and, and particularly to her leaders. For the temptation is ever present to meet the challenge of the world, which is under the sway of the evil one, with carnal weapons of the world with human wisdom and philosophy, with attractions of secular entertainment, with the display of massive organization. Not only do the weapons fail to make an impression on the strongholds of Satan, but a secularized church is a church which, having adopted the standards of the world, has ceased to fight and is herself overshadowed, or overshadowed by the powers of darkness." You have to listen to the tape again or the recording to get all that. But what he's saying is this. When the, when the church, breathtakingly, just amazingly, just almost idiotically, goes to the world to try to learn from the world and how to run the church, it has just emptied itself of its power. Because what makes the church powerful is our divine distinctives. The fact that we don't need what the world has. We don't need entertainment in the church. We don't need an arcade in the youth group. We don't need six flags over Jesus. We need the power of God. We need to talk about sin, heaven, hell, the devil, angels, demons. That's what makes us Christian. And that's what the world can't talk about. They don't believe in your devil, your demons, your God, your angels. That sounds like something out of a Chronicles of Narnia book. Oh no, it's true. It is true, and the God of this world has blinded the eyes, blinded the minds of the unbelievers so that they will not see the glorious light of the gospel in the face of Jesus. That's what's going on. And so when we try to equip ourselves, when the church tries to be like the world, oh, I just, I detest it. I told my wife the other day, none of my heroes preach in jeans. None of them. And you might say, oh, that's going a little overboard, man. Spurgeon didn't preach in jeans. Piper doesn't preach in jeans. Sproul doesn't preach in jeans. MacArthur doesn't preach in jeans. Sinclair Ferguson does not preach in jeans. Mark Dever doesn't preach in jeans. Steve Lawson is not preaching in jeans. Phil Johnson is not preaching in jeans. James White's not preaching in jeans. You may say, well, that's an overstatement. I know, but get the point. They're not trying to be relevant, hip, cool, and trendy. These men, hopefully, they're standing under the Word of God trembling, not trying to be cool. They're standing under the Word of God with eternal and weighty things in their hands, knowing that they have to give an account when they die. And they're not concerned about frosting their hair and putting on women's jeans and looking all metrosexual. My goodness, what has happened in the church today? It is a travesty. We joke about it. I joke about it. But my heroes preach with sobriety. You want to wear jeans? Go ahead. But I tell you what, I'm going to test you by your content. 
Are your sermons like the sermons of my heroes? You see, I think so much today, this conversational preaching that's going on where you walk into a church, you know what I'm talking about. Hey, guys, I got a lot of good things to tell you guys today, a lot of expiring things to say. You know, my wife and I were out walking the other day. What? That's the Bible? Where's the word of God? Where is Christ in all of that? Give us Christ. Don't talk about your walk in the park. Give us Christ. Uphold a Christ that is sufficient for the evils that we face. And don't give us a Christ that's so trendy and hip and cool who's going to ru- lose his relevance in just a few years anyway. Where's the emergent church today? Poof. It's gone. I just saw an interview with Rob Bell, one of the leaders of the emergent church movement, who is now openly embracing homosexuals as Christians and saying we need to give them membership. We need to embrace the homosexual lifestyle. He says the world has just progressed. This is, where, this is what we live in now. This is the world we live in today. The world has advanced. Christians just are old-fashioned. This is coming out of his mouth. Oh, my friends, I, I can't do it enough justice. And I don't have the words to say. So I tell you what, what, what you need more than anything. You need to put on the armor of God. And you need to get ready. You need to get ready for evil times because they're coming. They're here. I mean, I don't want to sound like a doomsday prophet. I'm not a prophet or a son of a prophet. But just look at your culture. Just look around. My dear friends, for the first time in human history, in the history of the world, I have 12 volumes at home by uh, Will Durant on the history of the world, history of humanity. All of it, all the way back. Never in any one of those 12 volumes with I don't know how many thousands of pages are you going to find a civilization that legalized gay marriage. It is breathtaking what we're seeing today in America. It is prophetic regardless of your eschatology. It is staggering, breathtaking, monumental. There's a tectonic shift that's taken place right beneath our feet. The only problem is most people didn't feel it. Our culture has changed. Don't get me started on Islam and immigration. Don't get me started on humanism and evolution and relativism in the universities today. Let me just plead with you guys as your pastor, please put on the armor of God every day. Please put on the helmet. Can we close? Go to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. It's funny for a pastor to say, can we close? And then I tell you to turn to a Bible verse. Verse 10, finally be strong in the Lord. That's what we need, right? Strength. In the strength of His might. Because your might won't cut it. Put on the full armor of God. If you can do that one step, folks, you would so better, you are at such a greater advantage now than most Christians will be today. Because putting on, making that decision, making that decision that it is important enough for me to do this so that you'll be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. 
For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the powers and against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day. And having done everything to stand, stand firm, therefore, having, got, having girded your loins with truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, in addition to all, take up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all of the flaming arrows of the evil one, and take up the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Onward, Christian soldier. In this way, let's pray. Father, help us in, in this fight and in this battle that we're in. Lord, it's as simple as our own kitchen where we fail sometimes to think that our battle is with flesh and blood, usually the person that we call husband or wife. But we know from your holy Bible that our battle is not with flesh and blood. It's not with a kid. It's not with that member in the church. It's not with that evil master at work. It's not with the people at work that gossip and slander us. God, it's, it's undergirded by spiritual things, demonic things. And Lord, we will be sorely ill-equipped to deal with this battle called the Christian life if we neglect to put on the full armor of God. Help us, Lord. Help us to learn from, from Paul everything that we can. Give me direction. God, I want your people to benefit from this. Help me, Lord. Lead me in the way that I should go and so that your people would be the greater equipped to fight the Christian fight, the good fight, the fight of faith. I pray protection over every house in this church, every marriage in this church. I pray protection over every child in this church, every young person, every family. I pray protection over every, every time everyone travels here and gets in the car. I pray protection for my brothers and sisters when they're on their computers, when they're at work. Lord, help us. We know that you will, and we know that you're able. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, let's stand together and let's close in a song.